Sorry. What about them? What about Quiquard and uh, uh, Tashtigo and the others? Are they victims as well? Wow. Because they're. I couldn't say. Quiquard is not a victim in the same way that the blacksmith is, because he's he's running from his alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know how, quite how to answer that. I mean, in, in abstract natural terms, the, a Christian would believe, a, a, certainly a Puritan would believe, that the pagans were among, to be included among the unregenerate. They're unbaptized, which means they're damned. Um, I don't think, I'm not aware of anything in Queequeg that sees himself as a victim because most of the other people live in a Western world which is more reflective. They use their thoughts to think about that. So their sense of victimhood is partly supported by their habits of mind. But I know that we know from the book that Queequeg is interested in Christianity. He wants to find out more about it. He doesn't go back to the islands. He stays with this. So um, whether there's some instinctive sense, or, I, you know, I don't know. But, but just in terms of the moral structure of the story, they're all damned and they all go down. And I want to get. I want to get to that. I want to. I want to get to that ending. Um, the, another way of thinking about this. Let's say you're in a Protestant marriage. If a woman thinks her husband is not living up to the conformity of the Christian code, she can divorce him. Divorce is not. It's, I mean, it's not an uncommon thing in the Protestant world. One of the interesting things about this theology is, let, let's, say he's, let's say he's drinking or gambling or something. You know that in the Catholic Church, that might be warrant for an annulment. The Church gives annulments. Um, but one of the interesting ironies, and it's shown in that monkey rope scene where, where Ishmael talks about the injustice of the moment. You know, if Quico goes down, why should he go down? Um, is that if all things are predetermined, they're already set. Why do anything? And if there is a bad in a person and your tendency is to see things in black-white terms because that's what the Protestant mind did, it, it encouraged people to see things in black-white terms. You're either among the saved or you're damned. That's it. And the evidence will be clear. At the beginning of Scarlet Letter, everybody assumes Hester's damned. That Scarlet Letter is not just an A. It's a sign of her damnation. She's a sinner. So that's why the women are so hard on her. Um, They'd like to kill. They'd like to see her dead. Um, if in in the Catholic world we believe Saint Monica is probably the best example of it that I know of in our tradition, we believe that um, even if a person is bad, there are things that we can do to help that person. You may have to wait ten years of through misery. I mean, who knows? But we believe that moments of of turning around of conversions take place. In a Protestant world, they can't. Things are already set. Um, one of the most, one of the, I think, one of the most remarkable passages in all of Shakespeare, we read it in King Lear. You, you remember, the, the most evil person, in the women are, Reagan and Goneril are evil, evil creatures. But the one who sets everything in motion is Edmund. He's just, a, he's like Iago. He's a very evil man. He plots everywhere. At the end of the story, Remember, he's already, he's engaged to both women. He's encouraged, I mean, he's done something that encourages them to want to kill each other because they want him. And he says, before I die, I want to do a good thing. And he tells them, save her quickly. And they go in to get Cordelia, and she's dead. 
but that nowhere except in Dante with um, I can't um, I can't remember when we did Dante but in the preliminary stages remember before pre-purgatory one of the first characters we saw was just on the point of death when he uttered the word Mary and the evil angel who was about ready to take him to hell gets displaced by another angel who takes him to purgatory so Dante knew that even up to the last moment it's not determined our free will is protected we can if we go to hell it's not because God put us there it's because that's what we wanted God doesn't put us there so in the Catholic tradition there is this sense of free will that conversions happen in the strangest ways it can happen at you know in a last breath it can happen late in life it can happen early I mean I know some young people who underwent conversions in the Rome experience in you know at UD they were Catholic um, so we're we're we're, we're, Melville has presented us with a story that has opened up the nature of our Protestant founding and making clear what it, some of its darker implications what's buried in those theologies that's why this book is so important it's about us and even if we're Catholics <laughs> we live in an American Protestant world so um, let me let me hear now here's my questions quick um, last time we met I asked everybody a couple of questions and I just I'm, I just want to spend only a few minutes to go back and give you time to wrap it up um, you know that um, Ahab takes that ship down because he's determined to kill Moby Dick and Moby Dick turns on his ships the whaling ships and then turns on the Pequod and crushes it so what we've got is this vortex turning taking the ship down and everybody goes down Ishmael is about just on the verge of going down and then I meant to bring Moby Dick God. pray for me please it's getting worse than I'm good Connie if you if any of you have that I'll just recall it if any of you have the book you remember it's just the, the epilogue is just a couple paragraphs I'm good but it describes the vortex whirling and then he said it started to smooth out like milk it quiets but it's still there he was being drawn to that center that very center so even though it's smoothing he's being drawn to it because that center symbolizes the central problem the I don't, the, the dark vortex at the center of the Protestant world I'm going to put that as dramatically as I can that center represents a vortex in, in Protestant theology it's taken the whole ship down Ishmael's on his way to that center and it's described as a button Mary you want to read the you want me to go ahead and read it well, read the last just from those lines notice the part about all the sharks and hawks swam by can I have it can I have it for a second didn't do anything to it I thought that was kind of strange yeah it is thanks sorry to do this thank you I have to take my coat off there just I'm till uh, quickly round and round then and ever contracting towards the button-like black bubble at the axis of that slowly wheeling circle like another ixion that's where I want to go I mean it's one one of the two major questions like another ixion I did revolve to gaining that vital center the black bubble upward burst 
and now liberated by reason of its cunning spring and owing to its great buoyancy, rising with great... The coffin comes up, an image of death, and he's saved. Thanks, Mary. So quick, two points. He's headed towards that center. It's an image of evil at the center of this book. He's drawn towards it. It'll suck him down. And right at that moment, the coffin buoys up. The one that Quickly made for his own, and he's saved. So there are all sorts of paradoxes in that image. Is everybody following? And he likes himself to Ixion. Ixion, in, in according to Greek mythology, was the first primordial criminal. He killed his father-in-law, and he was punished. And Zeus, in an act of forgiveness, this is so amazing, in an act of forgiveness, takes him to heaven, or the Olympian, you know, the, the, the home of the gods. And he betrays them. And when he betrays him, Zeus throws him down, and he's put on a wheel of fire. Fire. All, all major artists refer to this myth, the Ixian myth. It's the primor He's an image of the primordial crime that has to be punished. In our terms, it would be um, Adam and Eve disobeying God or Cain killing Abel. That's how important it is. It's, it's the principal myth of murder punishable by God. Is everybody following? And he's drawn towards that center. So Ixian-like, I was... So in a sense, it's showing... It's not until we go to that center where evil confronts us, where we have to deal with the center of it, that a, a miracle is offered. That's the image we have. It's when we confront the depths of evil that out of that some grace is given. That's why I have such quarrels with these modern critics who say, what did I... What, Yeah, inscrutable mystery, God. Inscrutable mystery, and another critic who I've read who said that this book is um, anti. Um, what's huh? It's an anti-logo-centered world, a logo-centered. And I've said this is one of the most logo-centered works I've ever read in my life. You can't. There's Ismael's finding meaning everywhere. If that is an indication of a logos, I don't know what it is. So the modern critic will look at this and say, inscrutable. So here's my question to you. When at the end of, of the story, in those three last days where Ahab is pursuing Moby Dick directly and finally gets to him in the end, Fidal is already wrapped up in the wire, he's gone, and Ishmael will join him there. Here's the way things are describing. There's a constant hammering. There's Tashtigo hammering the mast. The waves are described as hammering. The hammering begins when Quico is described hammering the, the coffin. Hammering is a constant metaphor that the waves are described as hammering. So why all that hammering? There's three masts. And remember during the lightning storm they all lit up. And the men got superstitious about it. There are three days. So what are we to make of this ending um, and the fact that the entire ship goes down? Is um, Ahab damned? And you know, I didn't read that passage, sorry, Mary, but you know that when, when he comes up in the coffin, the shark's beaks are locked. 
and the fowl, the uh, hawks, the vultures, have their beaks locked. So it's as if nature, it's as if nature is protecting him. So the the self predator, the predatory aspects of nature are um, answered, curbed, so that he's protected, and you know that he's picked up by the Rachel. So my question. Um, how, what are we to make of that ending, number one, and his identification with Ixion? Why that identification? Because Ixion, Ixion is punished eternally, eternally, on a wheel of fire. That's where he is, forever. He's Ixion-like until that coffin comes up. So what do we make of that ending? And two, what has he come back to tell us? What has he come back to tell us? Um, I'm sorry, what's your name again? Your Hallie? Hallie, please feel free to jump in here. Okay? I don't want you to be shy. I know you're, I mean, you're going to be, because, but don't be, this is a, this is a good group. Even, even if I get on them all the time. It's a really hospitable, good group. So, jump in anytime you want, okay? Feel free. Okay? What are your, Thoughts. What at first? The first one. What do we make of the ending? Is it an inscrutable mystery? What do we make of it? Well, he is being rescued almost miraculously by the coffin. Reminded me of the epics where it had to go down into hell and then yeah. be reborn. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Remember, Odysseus couldn't get home until he went to the underworld, and that was true for Aeneas, too. Glad you brought that up, in. Yeah, the ancient... I mean, the this, this, this is partly an answer, Mike. The pagans knew all this stuff. The, the Protestant world turned against it. I mean, it was all pagan. You know, with all this wisdom, there was nothing there, although there's a tremendous amount of wisdom. Remember, Virgil took Dante through the, the Inferno and Purgatorio. That's how much Dante thought of natural wisdom. Um, what else? Any, anybody else? What's, yeah, Robert? We had the insight of making the coffin waterproof. I think originally it wasn't, and someone says, you can't just throw it away that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I think that had something to do with resurrecting or bringing someone into your faith. Yeah. Say again, can you speak up to the truth? Say. The truth surfaced or, or he survived because of questions about the existing, uh, the, the existing trust in the world survived the questions. And, and he saw a beauty in the world. Yeah. In, and he saw creation, he saw all of God's work that survived. Yeah. The, he flowed up and, and come forward. Yeah. Yep. 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 The intelligibility of everything, that everything spoke, that there was meaning in every, absolutely everything. That's not accidental. When there's that much design in the world, it means there's a intelligence. There was too much intelligibility everywhere. Everything meant that's, that's only possible in a world in which intelligence is behind things. For everything to speak, for everything to be intelligible and have a beauty and a meaning and, you know. 
parallels there. So many what? So many parallels or symbolism, I guess not parallels, of Christ's death. I mean, he was saved by a death that wasn't, and so were we. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Although it's, I just, yeah, it, it sort of is. Although it's subtle, and lots of people don't see it. I mean, lots of modern critics are not going to even <laughs> give note to that. It's done so well. It's, you know, it, it, I just think Mel, and Melville's, he doesn't hit us over the head. It's also part of the action that you can read it. And you know, and um, let me ask this question along those lines: If there's an implied crucifixion with all the nailing and the three masks and, you know, all that takes place. Is there an implied crucifixion? Is there an implied God? And are we to say that, so it's behind Ishmael's resurrection? I mean, I'm not sure where you guys want to go with this. Is it there? And, and does it imply a refused crucifixion on Ahab's part? Because remember, I, I, remember, I told you, Ahab, Ahab has this line running down his body. It's like an incomplete crucifixion. And I've said of the Protestant world, they deny Christ's... They acknowledge it, but it's over. It was done. The sacraments are gone. So people don't participate in that the way a Catholic would, you know, goes to Mass and participates in it. We're asked to die daily, weekly. Um, so is there an implied refusal of the crucifixion that Christ is not around, the sacraments are not around? Is, is there an implied acceptance of the crucifixion by uh, Ishmael and rejection of it by Ahab? I mean, what are we to make of all the nailing, you know, that goes on in the... Like it's just hard. Can you can you speak up? It's a Jonah story. Yeah. And um, Ishmael is saved, just like Jonah was saved, um, because God had something He wanted Him to do, and He wanted Ishmael to go back and tell the story of Ahab in the context of everything that Ishmael learned about um, the cosmos. God's creation, God's faithfulness, all of that was part of what he learned on the voyage. And it was essential that other people not just see this as... An inscrutable... <laughs> an inscrutable history or punishment for that crotchety old Ahab who just... For that what? Crotchety old oh, Ahab crotchety. who just wanted to kill what he did. Crotchety? How about fiendish? How about fiendish? I'm, I'm really serious about that because, you know, my, my argument is that Fidal is an image. I mean, that's part of his function. He, Ahab's drawing him in and looking at him. It's that Eastern belief that evil is more powerful than good and you worship evil. So, and we, there, we, we read that passage where, and, you know, in the sunset where Ahab sees himself as damned. There's something fiendish in Ahab. This isn't just a crotchety hole. This is, he takes the ship down. Takes the ship down. Okay, it goes to the goes to the second question. 
What does a what does Ishmael come back to tell us? Or unless anybody has to add want to add anything to that. Um, you guys online, anything? Do you want to add anything to this question? What? How are we to understand that end? Can you hear me? Yeah. So the only thing I thought with the nailing was um, that the crew was attempting to repair the damage that was done, but they weren't repenting. They weren't changing. Hmm. They were just trying to repair what had happened. So they were trying to save themselves by their own hands. Of, yeah. Of, you know, looking for a higher power. Yeah, what a good thought. Remember too that the waves are described as hammering. It's not just the ship, but it, I think that's such a good point, Melody. Yeah, really good point. We can't save ourselves from our sins they're, because they're spiritual. We can't do it without Christ. That's. Um, anybody else on that first point before we go to the second? Let me ask this question. I've been one. It's sort of sorry. I was a little bit reluctant to do this because it's, but I I need to do it just in all honesty here. Everybody goes down on that ship. Ishmael is headed towards that center. I just think it's crucial. Ixion like, Ixion is eternally turning on that wheel of fire. He likens himself to that, which says to me, he's damned. He's on his way. Um, and it may be a warning of what he has to keep in his mind when he comes back to say whatever he has to say. But, that it's important to see that he's Ixian-like because if he doesn't carry that, he may not take as seriously as he should what it is he has to say. Is that clear? To, for him to identify with an etiological means causes, origins. That's an etiological myth. It goes to the origins of fundamental things. Crime and punishment involving the gods and the human being. He's the first one. For him to identify himself with that man, to me, carries a severe warning. You better be careful what you say when you get back, whatever it is you have to say, because there's a serious danger here. You know? So what what did what does Ishmael, the Jonah figure, what is it? He was spared to tell us. Why was he spared to tell us what? What is his message? If he's a Jonah figure, and you know that's how I see the book. If he's a Jonah figure, why was he spared? What, what, what is really important for us to get out of this book? What's important for us to hear for our salvation so that we're not going down with that ship? Because the Ninevites are going to be destroyed. Right? So I don't want to remind... Oh, here's my question. Sorry, I want to, I've got to go back. Sorry. Put that on pause for a second. Sorry. Train to a computer god. Um, is the fact that the ship goes down, the whole ship, and, and for a moment seeming to include Ishmael, is that a sign of Melville's Puritanism? Is that an unduly dark view of men? 
that because remember that ship represents everybody it's America every class is there every walk of life it's America drawing all people to it it's it is an image it's a what's called a synecdoche it's a part for a whole it's an image of America and in its industrial character raping nature this Protestant mindset of exploiting nature violently and everybody goes down is that an unduly Protestant spirit in Melville that he has such a black view of the world that everybody's going down and only Ishmael is saved how do, how do I was a little bit worried about ans asking that but I'm going to ask it so what's your thought about that I think everything that happens around us affects us and it can drag us down with it. Doesn't mean that I, that every person who died that day was damned. Because some people could have repented. We don't know that. But the evil around them took them also. But again, they might not be damned. Yeah, good point. Everybody on that ship committed themselves to Ahab's quest. None of them. As much as Starbuck demurred, he finally consented and went along. So everybody did commit themselves to that vengeance quest. In one sense, and by the way, this is a, an important element of Hawthorne. One of the elements of suspense is Hawthorne, for those of you who have started the book, you know, that when the opening, in the opening chapters, when Hester comes out to be exposed and punished, her husband is looking on He's not known, but he wants to find out who that father is because he wants to get back. It is principally about the suspense in Scarlet Letter is a suspense about vengeance. Will he exact vengeance? Will he get back? That's the heart of the story. And you know, part of the interest is because once he moves in with Dinsdale, he starts working on him in a sinister way, sort of fitting with what Mary's described. Dimsdale's not aware of it. But we're watching a man, using your description, we're watching a man um, being dragged down because of the, the guilt he feels for a sin, because of what somebody else is doing. So this whole notion of vengeance, of getting back at somebody for our wounds, is right at the heart of both of these books. Um, any other comments on this? Is this just a Protestant dark view of things, or is it realistic? Or I was going to say on the second question you asked about why, why is he alive to tell us? It kind of reminds me of the history, if you read about the early settlers and stuff, and how they would be killed by Indians, or like even in the Alamo, I believe, they let somebody survive. To go, the, the enemy, let somebody survive to go to the next town or tribe to tell them what happened. That's a common thing in the, that I read in the history. Yeah. Are, are, the, the, are the motives there, Mary, the same as they are for Jonah when God is saving Jonah? And, um, well, to so me, I look at that when Jonah went in the belly of the whale, that was kind of his resurrection. And I also saw it that Ishmael gradually came to a kind of resurrection when he realized that he had thrown in the towel with everybody else and that it really wasn't right. 
I kind of thought he was making a very slow resurrection from that he was trying to go upward. Yeah. But at the same time, you're on a ship in the ocean. You have to do what you were set out to do. I mean, what if yeah. you throw, yeah. throw you in the water? I, I don't know because I haven't been in that position. Feed you to the sharks. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, remember the five conversions. They're all touching. We went, I think, through most of them. Um, particularly the spermaceti one, which is, I just think, particularly tender. But let's take a few minutes. Cause I want to stop here because I want to get to Hunter. Quickly, what, what, what is it that Ishmael is telling us? If God spared him, if this is not just an inscrutable mystery, chaos, and it's an accident that he survives, just an accident, it's inscrutable, if in fact it's a mist or a miracle, that it's there's a providential work. I should have brought my book. Remember the passage that I wanted everybody to look to. It, it's in the looming chapter. To go back to the looming, where he describes himself the the uh, universal thump. Everybody's going to be thumped. Remember he said, "Let's all hands shake hands. We're all going to be thumped." So if I'm scrubbing a deck, it doesn't matter. That's the opposite of Ahab's response to being thumped. Ahab wants to kill. Ishmael's saying, it happens to all of us. Make a place for it. And then he, he talks about the providence. He's acknowledging a providential hand at the very beginning of the book. So whatever Ishmael thought when he signed up, we know that when he comes back and he's giving you the story, he allows for a providence. If we see the end as a miracle, that it's providential, there's a providential hand of God on the on the the, the fowls, the birds, the hawks, and the sharks, and the coffin coming up. There, there are too many coincidences protecting him to be chance. If God is saving him, for what? What has Ishmael come back to tell us that's important for us? Because otherwise, if we take this seriously, we're all going down. It's a pretty grim, and all of us are involved in Injuries, wounds, getting back. What do we do? How, how are we to look at what Ishmael has to say? Divine providence exists. Is what? Say? Divine providence exists. Yeah. What? Oh, sorry, Melody, go. So I think that Ishmael could have been the only one who was saved anyone else had been saved they wouldn't have been they wouldn't have been the ones seeing the beauty of nature well. and, and seeing the beauty of the characters of all those people who weren't like them yet were still honorable and wonderful and yeah, 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 yeah. so only Ishmael could have come back with the story that, yeah. that was told well. no one else would have been able to tell insight. is everybody getting that? If anybody, and she, um, she said, oh, oh, it was important that only Ishmael be saved. Uh, can you can you speak up? I don't know if we've got sound. Say, say it again, Melody, because some people didn't hear it. Okay, I'll try. Only Ishmael could have been saved to tell that story because everyone else was so caught up in. Uh, the merchandise and whaling—they—they they weren't seeing the beauty. They weren't seeing the nature. You know, they didn't have 
the stories about the like Pequeg being a, a wonderful person once you get past what you thought of him. You know, he wasn't baptized; he was a savage. But but uh, Ishmael loved, loved him. As yeah. Not only loved him, but knew his life depended on him. Let me put, if I can, just add the, if anybody, this is really, it's such a good insight. If anybody else had been saved, it would have taken away from the miraculous nature and the, and the divinely appointed task he had. Right? Because somebody could say, somebody else is saved, so it, it can't be that. The fact that he was the only one saved means, I mean, there's a real significance in that, because if somebody else had been saved, you, it could detract or open up another possibility. But in this case, it, there's only one possibility. He's saved, and we've got all the reasons. The book makes that clear. Um, he dissociates himself gradually. He sees beauty and truth everywhere. He sees goodness everywhere. He doesn't close his eyes to evil. He sees the shark massacre for what it is. He's, he sees the feminine in the... the um, What's the herd of whales, the, what's the chapter called, the Grand Armada? Yeah. You know, he sees the meaning, he thinks deeply about things. There's a beauty to everything. There's an order to everything. So the fact that he's the only one reinforces the sense that it had to be a miracle. If other, if it, if other people had come in, it would have given people arguments that have said, it's not a miracle, there are other survivors. The fact that only one reinforces the sense that there is something truly miraculous. How in the world <laughs> to anybody coming away from this saint inscrutable mystery? All the evidence, all the evidence points the other way. For anybody reasonable. <laughs> anybody else, anybody else, what, what, what does Ishmael come back to tell us? Bob, what, what's, uh, no, come on, what's, best thoughts, what is he, what does the book mean? What does it mean to you? What does Ishmael what have we been given by him? What's your take on? Why did you enjoy the book? I don't know that I could add anything else. I think, you know, if you're spinning around on the pinwheel of fire and you think basically everything's over and then all of a sudden you're saved, I think everything you learned on the voyage finally made sense. <coughs> And I think you finally understand why you're there. I mean, I don't think anybody knew the ending until Melville, until boom, the very ending happened. Yeah, and I mean, just, just to reinforce your point, I don't think anybody else saw the meaning in things that Ishmael did. Who on that, who on that ship would have found meaning in portraits of whales, stories of whales, skeletons, fins, spout, fountain, you know, go where you will. Was there anybody else on that ship who would, have, who would have had reason for praising nature and seeing the beauty of things? When Ahab, the per, what everybody was committed to was Ahab's vision of the world. It's evil, get back at it. Did anybody else see how extraordinary everything was? That's why I've argued that it seems to me Ishmael is taking it back to the view that we had with Dante, a medieval world view that we've lost today. That there's this extraordinary goodness in nature. Man, man commits evil by his free will, but nature was created good. Do we see it? Do we love it? Are we grateful for it? 
Anybody else on what Ishmael comes back to, to give us? What's important for us to... It's interesting because if we really take seriously what, what the book has given us, we should be grateful. What's going on around us that we shouldn't feel gratitude for? What was Chesterton's argument in orthodoxy? The first response to everything in the world should be, we didn't create ourselves, the first response to everything in the world should be gratitude. I think it was in the Ethics of Elfland or whatever, one of those chapters in there where and he's making that argument. I know in one of the earlier classes you had asked the question whether uh, Ishmael was his insights were as the storyteller or as the character that this was all happening to, something like that. And I think it's both because obviously all along he was gaining all these insights because of who he was. And yet at the same time, I think that when people have gone through such a life-changing experience, right. that that also colors your right. perspective. Right, right, right. Right. He's going to see things more deeply than he would if that hadn't have happened. I think that's why one of the reasons I think that last image of that vortex that he's heading towards that button is so important. Um, he was on his way there. Uh, when he was, I mean, when he was obviously more thoughtful and saw goodness that other people didn't. But um, I think Bob's comment that it's, it's a saving moment. He's saved. So he knows evil, he knows what men are capable, but he also knows what it means to be the survivor of a miracle, I mean, to be rescued by um, God. In a sense, it's returning us to the depths of Christianity, that Christ has saved everybody, a miracle is, do we believe it? Do we live our lives that way? Really, genuinely, do we live our lives that way? Okay, sorry. So Ahab couldn't forgive what he did for his injury. And I mean, that was what we saw happen. We saw forgiveness. We saw that, that um, Ishmael kind of, like she said, threw the towel in with everyone else. But Ahab realized more than any of the rest of them. And so he kind of, his saving, his, his being saved was forgiveness. Is that what he's telling everyone? Is that what his mission was to come back and tell everyone that there is forgiveness? That we should forgive others? Does anybody have a response to that? Doug? You're open to it. I mean, the other way of putting it, how many of those men would have even... If we see Ishmael as a figure who undergoes these conversions, because he does, and he's dissociating himself, he's open, he, he's, his initial response to creation becomes wonder. That's the way he starts looking at the world. It's not closed and fixed and narrow. 
And if it is, does that make him more open, more receptive to an offering of grace when it's given? Would the other men have, would A, well, let me put it, does Ahab respond to moments that are given to him? God. I mean, over and over and over again, he's given occasions where omens are, lots is being given. He's so fixed on dealing and, I, and the, re, the, the, so, the reason I emphasize his nobility, first of all, is because it's a, it's a trait of tragic heroes. The, the modern world is screwed up in its attitude towards tragedy. We lack a tragic vision. It's really important. The tragic heroes are always noble. You take that away and you lose the sense of the fall. The, the reason Melville spends so much time um, presenting an Ahab that's sympathetic to us at the end, all of his, the fondness for Pip, is honest for Starbuck, the, the tear in the ocean, telling Starbuck to stay over and over and over again, we're watching a really good man, is because he wants us to feel what's lost. How many people would be open to a miraculous act? Ahab is, is shown to, no matter how much is offered to him, he's just determined to do this. How many people? Um, undergo conversions on that ship. None that we know of except Ishmael. And I, I mean to go to um, both Karen's and um, Karen's question and Suzanne's answer that it just seems to me showing us that the natural response to everything should be wonder. And if that's true, you're going to make a place for God more completely than if you would if your mind were closed. The natural response to creation should be wonder and think. You guys wear me out. You think you you think you go home tired? <laughs> if you think about small children, they're open to wonder. They have not yet been pushed away into some of these other things. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's just, yeah, I've said it often before. It's just, <laughs> we, the fact that we get educated should not keep us from being, of wondering. To wonder means to want to know the causes of things, what's behind it. That's what wonder is. The problem is that when we get educated, we think we have the answers to things. And, you know, we settle into our practical lives, we've got control. That's the land, as opposed to the sea. Um, it's important till we die to have some wonder um, what, what I think makes it a, a much more complicated problem is that the, it, for a Christian Protestant or Catholic is, it is the cross that we should have a certainty about that but all that relates to it should be good. What, one, if we get to it, one of the books that we will read, I'm not sure we'll survive, but one of the books that's on the reading list is T.S. Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral. It's a book about Thomas Beckett's um, martyrdom. And it's one of the most, it's just, you'll, it's an extraordinary book because in the book, we're in the mind of a man having to decide, is this really for myself or for God? Am I doing this for him? Am I doing it for myself? Those are wrenching, anguished moments 
where you have to search your soul and wonder, am I really doing this? I mean, wonder. There it is again. You have to wonder whether what you're doing is, when you think you're serving God, but you're really doing it for yourself. It's a tough, tough question. Yeah? During the Lent season, you know, he's like, oh, well, I'm not going to eat this or that. And I'm like, okay, now wait a minute. Are you doing this because you want to lose a few pounds? Oh. <laughs> or are you doing this because, you know, it's for God. Yes, I totally see that. Finger of God. You're pointing the finger of God at me right now. <laughs> Melody, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, because you had talked about Madala being an evil influence, and I never really saw that that much until the last few chapters when it talked about him shadowing Ahab right. not saying anything but staying in the shadows and mimicking him and I thought about the St. Michael prayer about the evil spirits who wander the world <laughs> yes. yes yes he just like he was there to egg on Ahab when he had those moments of humanity he jumped right back into it and I thought that was a very disturbing part. Yeah, yeah. Just as a side note, I I learned this last year. You you know, I think, I mean, it's it's in a piece that I've been trying to put together, that the line that I've been drawing for you or asking you to take a look at begins with Leo the 13th um, in um, Eternus um, Patria, the Eternal Father. Um, at the turn of the century, where he made a call f- for people to recover a realist philosophy, because his view of the world was that, we, and it, this is—I'm not general. I mean, I'm this, I'm, this is a, a fairly faithful description of him. That uh, the idealist philosophy set in motion by Descartes and Kant, which has taken the modern mind, is very different from Aristotle and Saint Thomas. But he was calling for um, a recover of a healthy philosophy because his concern was modern man losing his head, his powers of reason. So take that, you know that I've been pushing at you, that at you forever. John Paul, Fide Orazio, Regensburg, Benedict, loss of a logos in the fundamentalist and Islamic mind, Chesterton, Lewis, all of them are struggling to help man recover a better head because the, the sacred appears in nature and it's, it's, if we lose our minds, we're incapable of seeing what's in nature. That, I mean, that's the amazing thing about Ishmael. He's really open to nature, which means he's open to wonders and the sacred. If you close your mind down, where, how do you see the sacred anywhere? So it was um, Leo XIII in that period when he was aware that one of the marks of the modern educated man was that he was losing his mind. Chesterton's claim at the beginning of the orthodoxy. Most educated people are, are in Hanwell, he said. The one quality that he described most educated people was the spirit of contraction. Taking a lot and, and making it really small so they had these very coherent minds but very small circles. That was the characteristic of a madman. Try arguing with a madman. It's impossible. It's impossible. Try arguing with a modern secular atheist. It's impossible. They've got very coherent minds. His description of it is they're marked by a contraction, a spiritual contraction. Leopold's great concern was man was losing his intellect. And he knew if that were true, the Catholic world would suffer. 
It was in that period that he made the St. Michael prayer. That prayer goes back to him. I think in a night when he was dreaming or had this dream and a vision and then... The attorney Patris, it's turn of the century, the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. Look for Eterni Patris, the Eternal Father. That that was his encyclical. But he he wrote the uh, he had a vision, and and in that vision, out of that vision came the prayer to Saint Michael, exactly in that context. Um, and the shadow, remember, the, the shadow image of Fadala appears much earlier. Remember I read it. It's around the quarterdeck when Fadala's outside and Ahab's pacing and their shadows merge. So that's the first image early on in the book that something is going on that we're meant to see by that shadow image. Remember when, when the prophet was confronting um, Ishmael and Quiqui at the beginning, he said, did you see them? Did you see them? Those shadows? Did you see them? Did you, did you see them? It's one of the questions I put to you. Did you see them? Did you see them? There's something shadowy. Do, do Americans see the shadow of evil? These, these things that are hard. Demons don't confront us. You know, is full-blown image. Of, we know about them from inside. That's, that's where they take root. Remember in the parable where I think God chases the demons out and he cleans house and then seven more come back. <laughs> demons take up their resident inside. That's where the fight goes on. So they're appropriately likened to shadows. You know. Um, okay. Any last comments on I'm trusting everybody sees what a remarkable book. I and mean, we've just done a really remarkable book. I'm not aware of that, but it, to me, it makes absolute. When I think, what I know, I, I, my personally as a you know somebody in literature, I, I would say Melville and Faulkner are the greatest writers. And I, I love Cooper, I love Hawthorne, and I love other American writers. The two of them give a more complete picture of our humanity than any other American. And I think because Melville takes it as a subject, the one that we've been dealing with, the, a Protestant America in our founding, he goes to a depth that nobody does. Not even Faulkner, and I hate saying that because I love Faulkner so much. But I'd say this is probably the greatest American novel ever written for the reason that we've been, because it goes to spiritual depths. That, and by the way, one of the things that distinguishes America from Europe, and I personally, I hope everybody sees this by now, America's founding is religious. We consciously break from Europe and found a country on religious principles. We are the, one of the most violent countries in the world. Suicide, I mean, murder, crimes, shoot, you know, shoot, all that stuff. Through the roof in our country. We, we wear suit and ties. We walk around claiming to be educated, educated, far more civilized. C.S. Lewis used the word not for Americans but for borders he called them he called us all the border world trousered apes <laughs> trousered apes
Yeah. He's not teaching any of this. I mean, he spins a tale, and, and it's fabulous and enlightening, and he's, he's, um, he's, he's light with it, so you're not buried as deep as like Dostoevsky was, was is excellent, but so much deeper and darker. This is the same quality, but with a lighter hair. Yeah. And there's yeah, one. I mean, Ishmael really did. He's a, he describes in in one of the chapters the man of sorrows, and I think that's an absolute. It's a well, and it's also I'd say Melville that he knew sorrows deeply, and it gave him a greater capacity for humor, because Ishmael, if if not, if nothing else, Ishmael is a a very comic character, you know, very funny. Um, the, and the other thing, just to add to that, that. Um, there are passages like the description of the sea in some of them, um, and I didn't go to them because I didn't want to take time. But some of the passages are the passages of a poet, of a lyric poet. He does things with language and the motions of the words that give the feel of a lyric poem. He was so capable of doing that with language. So, let's stop. Okay, let's stop. Um, I'm glad we've done this. Um, I'm glad we've done it. It's been a great work to do. So, okay, Hawthorne. Hmm? <laughs> Would you please not encourage her, Bob? I didn't say it. Okay. <laughs> She's always making faces at me. Just one little thing before we go on. I was just thinking about the very beginning of the book. Hawthorne? No. Oh, Melville. When he, in the first paragraph, when he talks about when he reaches the point that he feels like killing himself, <laughs> he goes to the sea. So clearly, even there, there was the, there's something more for me here. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. And don't forget, call me Ishmael means he's taking on an identity. He doesn't belong. He's identifying with something outside that world. It gives him a picture inside. And the assumption is somebody inside could not tell that story. They're too caught by it. So, and it's biblical. You know, Ishmael, call me Ishmael. Wagner's going to pick that up and go down Moses, but that's another story. Anyway, let's stop. Come on. Um, very, very quick. I, I, I really wanted to... <laughs> Suzanne's going to be making faces at me all. Um, in the car on the way here, I, I asked her to read the last um, paragraph because I, um, I, I, I wasn't finished with my reading, but I, I love the... This is in the second chapter because I really... I plan to do a good bit of reading because I wanted you to... I'll do it next week. I'll do it next week because I really want you to... I've got some serious questions about what Hawthorne's doing with his writing because he's a great writer. So I wanted to just read a couple of paragraphs, just read them so you could hear them. And Suzanne said, so when do you plan to, <laughs> so when do, you plan to do this? I said, for sure, at the end of class. Are you kidding? I have plenty of time. And she's going, Robert, do you know, do you know what time it is? <laughs> Don't gloat. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Okay. Okay.
I don't think I'm helping the men in class at all here because <laughs> let's let's go a couple of historical background facts um, one of the most important things to hold on to here is that there are two time frame realities there's the reality of the custom house I'm giving a quiz I'm giving a quiz on the custom house next week <laughs> and don't say you haven't been warned the custom house it is a wonderful one and you know most critics are gonna pass it, it is a I'll, I'll express my joy later it's it's really delightful it, it shows a comic strain in Hawthorne he's, he's laughing at himself he's also laughing at something that, that shows a quality I don't they're they're both Melville and Hawthorne had this one thing in common it's what made them hate the transcendentalists Thoreau, Emerson, the rest, because they believed in what they called the brotherhood of sin, that they spoke from within sin. One of the problems they saw around them is because Christians believed they were saved, they looked at people in this black-white way. What, what Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter is about fundamentally is Hawthorne going back to a generation which looked at people this black-white way, and bringing to it a sensibility, a spirit of charity that generation lacked. So there are two time frames. One is the Custom House. It's in Hawthorne's present. So that's 1850, roughly. And the story which takes place in 1642. The story takes place over a period of seven years, from the time of Pearl's birth, when Hester emerges with her child, or the sign of her sin, so we're going back to the founding generation. This work is about our founding. And my claim is that this is a re-founding of that American founding. He's offering something to change the spirit of America as a poet. That's why I've been making these claims for poetry. He's bringing to it something only a poet, not a scientist, not an anthropologist, not a philosopher. He's bringing to it something only a poet could. He's telling that story exactly as it happened, or theoretically as it would have happened, but bringing to it a very different spirit from the spirit of those original founders. So there are two time frames. And one of the most important things to hold on about the, the Custom House story is that the Scarlet Letter is contained in it, which means he's carrying the past forward. Yes? He goes up to the floor of the custom house and finds his package and looks into it and here's this cloth of the scarlet letter. I'm going to read it in a minute, well, <laughs> next week when we get... <laughs> because it's wonderful because you know he picks it up he puts it on his breast and he's shocked and, he, and it falls off because he feels a burning sensation. Okay. So there are two time frames. The custom house time, it's the present. But he finds this package and the story in it, so it means that story is contained in the present. He is carrying the past forward and recreating it. He's bringing something to it that that spirit, that founding generation lacked. Okay. <clears throat> Amazing. The central figure of the story is a woman. This is not, and there are lots of feminists who are going to pick this up and run with it. It, is, it could not be more contrary to modern feminism. One of the motivating aspects of modern 
Feminism is empowerment, power, political power. This woman gains her power, if she has any at all, from her sins. Because having borne sin and experienced the way in which people have treated her as a sinner, she's more sensitive, like the poet, to what's going on inside of people than people themselves. Because people in this world misread each other everywhere. You know, we know that from the beginning. When she makes her appearance coming out with her child, three of the four women say, brand her tongue, put a fire, put a fire iron, iron on her head, kill her, execute her. It's one of the men that has to say to these women, quiet, stop this, what are you doing? So people tend to judge, make judgments according to outward appearances. Hester has had to bear ridicule, shame, guilt. Um, Dimsdale comes to it late. I mean, we'll talk about that when we look at the story. This is first and foremost, in an amazing way, about a woman. She's not married. If anybody minimizes this, give Jane Austen your importance place in history. For, and most people have read something of Jane Austen. Go back to Jane Austen. Does Jane Austen ever come close to treating a character like this? What defines Hester is her depth of sin. None of Jane Austen characters get close to this. One of them in Mansfield Park is, the, I think, Jane Austen's greatest female character. But Jane Austen won't go there. She's in a proper English world. This is deeply American. It's deeply religious. What's at the heart of it is the wound of sin. What Hawthorne's dealing with is sin and a grace offered to redeem it. That's what the story's about. Um, the story, like Moby Dick, is critiquing the anti-human cruelties of the Protestant theologies and the effects on people. We saw that in Moby Dick. We're going to see it here. And you know those three beliefs. Sola Scripture, Sola Fide, that's one. In efficacy of good works and predestination. Those are the principal motivating things. We'll see in this book when um, people are thinking about taking Hester away, or I mean uh, Pearl away from Hester. Um, one of the ministers says, we have to go to scripture. The idea that natural philosophy could aid them is a blasphemy. They will not turn to philosophy, they will not turn to reason, because reason's contrary to faith. Their faith means everything. So there, there's on the part of this community a whole rejection of the world of reason, which is fundamental to the Catholic Church. So those three doctrines that we saw at work in Melville are at work here. We're watching a community who was raised on those beliefs and what it's, and it's played out in the story. Um, one of the things, one of the central themes of um, Scarlet Letter is the way we read things. How do we read that letter? I hope everybody sees this. This is principally about reading because it's about a letter A. What does that letter stand for? What's its meaning? How do we read? Fundamentally, it's a story about reading. How we read the world. It's one of the things I've been pushing. Um, because people in a black-white mindset which the Protestant world encourages, the damned, the saved. That black-white mindset is harmful to the people who see that way, to the judgments that they make. Some of the criticism on this book, God, I think I told you that um, one of the 
parishioners from the St. Francis class came to me with an article from the Dallas Daily News and it was by a woman who was a modern feminist um, minister. I don't remember the church. But she wrote a several page article that the Dallas News published and he brought it to me because it made me so, I've never written a, to a newspaper, I've never in my life. I was so upset by that that I wrote back, they didn't publish it. Um, but by the way, I sent it on to Communio and Communio Public. I, I don't know when it's going to come out. But it's my response to somebody who's making the claim that when she was younger, she thought Scarlet Letter was about um, adultery. But in older, wiser years, now that she's learned everything, she sees that it wasn't ever about adultery. It's about clergy abuse. I don't usually get, well, sometimes. I don't, I don't usually get angry at criticism. No, I got angry at that. I mean, I sat down and wrote an article. Um, I was so upset with it. Anyway, so criticism is all over the map on this. Um, there's a critic who says it's about clergy abuse. There are lots of feminists who will say that it's a very subversive book because it's questioning the values towards women and towards society. But what we see in the book is that we've got a very religious community who's very hypocritical in the way that it looks at the world, and Hawthorne is unmasking that. There's a truth to that, a pretty serious truth to that. That's largely what the book is about. He's uncovering it. But we have to ask, what's the spirit with which he does that? What does he bring to it? Like the spirit that Melville brings to Moby Dick. Um, lots of people speculate on what happened between Hester and Dimsdale. Um, D.H. Lawrence, who was a, one of those famous English writers of the 20th century, wrote Sons and Lovers and... Um, What's the other famous one that... Say it again, Chad? Yeah, Lady Chatters. There were explicit sexual scenes which made him stand out in the 20th century, but he was regarded as one of the most important writers of the 20th century. His claim is that um, Hester seduced Dimsdale. I throw that out. I'm just, I want you just to entertain some thoughts when you read it. One of the interesting things I'd like you to entertain, because Dimsdale's a very shy, delicate, introverted kind of man, and he's a minister. Hester's not going to divulge his identity. You know that. When, he's, when she's pressed at the beginning to divulge the, who the, to say who the father of the child is, she will not tell. And, she, and she's put that question to Dimsdale. Dimsdale's asked to ask her when he's the father. So the ironies don't get greater than that. Here's the father being asked to expose her. She's looking at the father of her child and says she will not do that. Serious question. What happens to his community who believes that an act of adultery is evidence that you're among the damned? If he says, this is the man everybody looks up to as the principle of religiosity, of faith in the community, and he says, I'm the father. I hope everybody sees that because we just can't underestimate the position he's in. I mean, you could wish that he had more courage, but you can also see that this is not an easy position. Just to show, because um, Lawrence's, I mean, D.H. Lawrence said that um, Hester seduced, we don't know. We don't know the details. But I offer this. If she was a young man and she was susceptible to him, because lots of women are to priests, if they're a um, charismatic figure, women can be drawn to them. And if he's a sensitive, introverted person and she showed any interest, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want to make claims, I'm just saying. We don't know, 
Hawthorne doesn't say. What we know is um, they had sex together and a child came out. Whether there was an affair, whether it was more than one time, we don't know. <coughs> but what we do know is it was a romantic love. Romantic, natural. It was a, which all of us start with, all of, our, all of our earliest ties with each other have an element of romance. We're drawn to each other in the spirit of romance. That romantic nature doesn't change through the course of the book because late in the book, as we're moving towards the end, the two of them are gonna meet in the forest and talk about fleeing because of the difficulties they're in. In that moment, this is a, a really important moment for the whole book, Hester's gonna take off that A for the first time. And you know that Pearl's been gesticulating. I mean, she's, she's growing up with some sense of something. She has that sensitivity of a child. She doesn't know, she can't clarify things with her mind, but she has that sensitivity where everything means and has left her responsive enough that people want to take her away from her mother. When they meet in the forest and Heather takes off that letter, letter, it sets Pearl off. The two of them plan to escape, run away, and Dimsdale leaves with that plan in mind. What we're seeing at that moment is when she takes off that badge, which is an admission of sin, and he does too, he returns to the village. Hawthorne is very clear on what we have to be aware of in what, he, what we would call the natural man. I hope I'm being clear. The natural man doesn't need grace. He's sufficient to himself. He can get along. Yeah? We don't, our gifts are fine. The pagans all got along. We've got great gifts naturally. The Protestants were depraved. The pagans would have said there's something wrong, but they would have never said complete depravity. We've got too many good gifts, natural gifts. When he leaves that forward as the natural, that force and then as the natural man, as an enemy, he does three things, and I'm not going to tell you what, you have to read. He does three things that give away something. So what happens in that scene is romantic love is affirmed. Nature approves. The sunshine comes out at that moment. It's natural. Nature's approving. But is it enough without grace? It's one of the tensions of the novel. Without grace. Can man make it without grace according to Melville? Can man make it without grace according to Hawthorne? Okay. Um, um, some of the important things. I'm going to run through these quickly and then we'll stop. Redeeming the past. In the um, Custom House um, chapter, Hawthorne makes clear how fond he is of his past. His past is there. And he makes it clear that he wants to atone for the crimes of his ancestors. He feels guilt. He, cares the gu he carries the guilt of the past with him. The novel is an attempt to answer those crimes. The theme of the improbable or miraculous. We're going to see it in the Custom House scene because when he puts that letter on his breast, it burns. And he's going to um, ascend to a, um, the, the um, pillory, the scaffold in the middle of the novel. Stars will come out and they'll seem to show an A in the sky. At the end, he's going to as ascend that, um, that um, scaffold again. When he gives his an election speech, it's at the very end of the novel, miraculous things will happen. So there are a number of points in the novel where the miraculous occurs. Not everybody sees them. So we're in what Hawthorne would have called a novel of romance. 
By romance, he means the improbable, the miraculous. Why did most people not like Hawthorne and Melville? Because they dealt with the improbable, the miraculous. We saw it all the way through Moby Dick, right? We're going to see it here. Not, not as dramatically, but here. Flannery O'Connor, who is one of the most important modern writers, who is Catholic, she's one of the most important, sees herself as following in the tradition of Hawthorne. But she wouldn't have, she, or sorry, Hawthorne. And what did you say, I'm sorry, following what? She's in the tradition of Hawthorne, Flannery O'Connor. What's the matter? I just didn't hear you. Probably me. She's following, she, would, she called what she writes, the tradition in which she writes called grotesque comedy because she's showing moments when evil and grace meet. When evil and grace meet, there's a violence, always. Um, but um, she looked to Hawthorne a lot uh, to help her develop her own vision of the world. So the theme of the improbable or miraculous, um, the thwarting of evil by good, if you take away the sacraments, how do you deal with evil? Chillingworth, Hester's actual husband, wants to know who the father of the child is. He wants to get back. And what we're watching, he, Chillingworth is a, is a prototype of the modern intellectual. The modern intellectual, because he wants to use his mind to get at evil, to use his intellect to criticize. Iago's probably the first prototype, Shakespeare, remember. And if you remember from Shakespeare from uh, Othello, Iago said, I'm nothing if I'm not critical. He, the critical mind is so tuned that it loses a tie with its heart and he is capable of criticizing without loving. So Chillingsworth follows in that tradition. He's a modern early image of, he's an image, an early image of the modern intellect, the way we use the mind to criticize. The natural man we will see um, when Hester and Dimsdale meet in the letter. The scarlet letter itself um, points up the theme of hermen hermeneutics interpretation. How do we interpret? How do we read things? What's in a letter? When a person commits a sin, how do we look at that person? Hawthorne is like Ishmael. He's rewriting history. My claim will be, and I'll try to back it up as we go along, he's refounding. As a poet, he's doing something only the great poets do. He's taking a past event and presenting it in a way that makes it possible for us to feel things in our heart that those early people did not. It's helping to transform our minds the way we see and our hearts the way we feel. Melville did that with Ishmael. Hawthorne's doing it with um, the story. Let me stop there. Those are just some of the um, major themes we will touch on. Um, any questions before we... Next, next week, I'm going to read through the custom house. I'm going to go through some passages that I just think you'll enjoy and and then we'll do the um, first several chapters. First, We'll take four weeks, so break it down into fours, whatever that is. I don't know the chapter count. Um, if you haven't bought a book yet, um, I would recommend the Barnes and Noble, but any, you know, it's just, it's simple, it's unacademic. There's some really good notes in it, but whatever you got, we'll do, I won't go by page numbers, I'll go by chapters. Whatever copy you have will be fine. 
but we'll start with the custom house we'll do the first few chapters um, and we're back at a moment of crisis in Christianity in America the Christian faith is at stake Hawthorne in the custom house he's showing a world that is like um, Bedford and, New and Nantucket he's showing a world that has lost its faith in the custom house everybody's eating and self-satisfied and comfortable and and he comes across this scarlet letter so you know they're, they're radically different works but they're amazing in the Christian spirit that they bring to the writings that they do they're going back to the crisis that we've been in now for over a hundred years that's we're at a, we're at that crisis when it's far worse than it was for them. So it's important to read these works. Okay, any last comments or questions before we? Yeah, they they loved each other. I mean, they yeah yeah um, they they admired each of them admired what the other was doing. So different, so radically different. But they could see underneath the differences there was something they had in, and it's this brotherhood of sin that any I was wondering if the letter A was also meant for people to like stay away from her she's got a disease you know because she had to wear it on her yep. right here on her bosom yes not only meant to be shame for her but yes I kind of thought that too yep you're exactly right Mary like it's, no man would touch her. Or right. Offer her marriage. I was thinking of the old or the Old Testament and the the lepers, that there was that don't touch them. Yes, the the fact that she was in sin, evident sin, meant she was among the unregenerate. You stay away from her. Condemn her. Put. This is wonderful. I mean, we're really looking at something that so touches on our own faith. You know, how do how do we live it? What are we doing? So. Okay, you all have a good week, and um, some of you try to behave. Oh, I might That's you, be Melody. <laughs> I probably won't be here next week. Okay. I won't either, but hopefully I'll see you online. I've got five grandbabies at my house. <laughs> <laughs> that number is multiplying in this class. You can't hear the noise. <laughs>